I bid you welcome again this morning. Please turn with me in your Bibles to the second chapter of the book of Ephesians. The text on which the sermon is based is going to be Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 and 5, but we will again read all the way from verse 1 to verse 10, uh, since this is a, a connected thought and we are taking it piece by piece on our Sundays together. You can find that on page 1159 in the Navy Bibles uh, in your pew. And so the Apostle Paul begins in verse 1. You were dead in your trespasses and the sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. He raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is the word of the Lord, and so again we say, thanks be to God. Last week we went through verses 1 through 3, hearing the Apostle Paul establish our total spiritual uh, inertness or spiritual death, being dead in sin, a total inability. Paul uses the language of being dead in trespasses. And so if I were to try to put myself in the shoes of the apostle saying, what's the best way I can communicate the inability of man to save himself, which is the bell he's ringing through that entire 1 through 10 passage, I would say that spiritual death would be the best way to do it. He also says that we're by nature children of wrath. That's back in verse 3. Paul means to lay us low in the grave that we might be raised up all the higher. And all the greatest stories are stories of seeming total defeat. I would, I would bet that your favorite stories, your favorite novels, your favorite movies, your favorite plays, whatever have you, are stories of seeming total defeat, seeming hopelessness, seeming unbreakable darkness. The dragon is unbeatable. The orcs are too many. The enemy is too cunning, too resourceful, and too clever. But then in the last few seconds, light breaks through. There's a weak spot in the dragon. Gandalf brings reinforcements the orcs didn't know about. There's an older and deeper magic that the white witch did not know. So it is with the story of our salvation. Paul has laid us low in the grave, dead in trespasses and sins. And then he writes in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4, he begins with those two words, but God. Now, you might notice if you've got uh, the ESV and you've got a little footnote, it says it could also be and God. And I have to be honest, I have no idea why they put that because it is, it's not the typical Greek word for and. It is a word that can mean and, but usually is meant to mark this contrast. 
Right? So here's this, here's this one thing happening, but now here's this, this other thing. And so you could say and. You could say and now here's what God is doing. Right? In that sense, like, like here, here was the real bad news and now I'm going to give you the good news. But I think that the translators got it right when they say but God. Because God is a God of great rescue. The whole Bible, in fact, is a long historical narrative of God's rescue that we do not deserve. And our God loves to write cliffhanger stories, right? Adam and Eve deserved to die, but God. The whole world deserved to perish in a flood, but God. Abraham has a knife over his son, but God intervenes at the last second. The children of Israel are at the Red Sea. Pharaoh and all his armies are closing in, but God. And that's just the first two books. You were dead in your trespasses and sins, but God. You see why Paul starts with our sinful condition. If we don't understand our condition, our rescue isn't really a rescue. We need to be saved from the devil, as Paul says, who works on us and in us. He's the prince of the power of the air at work in the sons of disobedience. We also need to be saved from this world. We need to be saved from the devil. We need to be saved from the world, which offers us endless ways to continue to deaden ourselves, to to numb our souls, to blind our eyes, to deafen our ears. We need to be saved from our own flesh. That is our own sinful nature and our ideas of what it means to save ourselves and create our own meaning. Paul's point in the first three verses of this chapter has been that prior to conversion, the only thing you bring to God is a carcass. I once heard it put this way, you are dead, you're in the casket, that's your flesh. Death and all its stink over you. And the world, because you have flesh, world is three acres of dirt on top of your casket. And the devil is the caretaker of the cemetery in which you find yourself. And it is into this hopelessness that God speaks. We need a God who is resourceful enough, who has enough, who's motivated enough, who wants to enough, who's powerful enough to rescue us out of this terrible condition. We learn in verses 4 and 5 at least three things that are going to shape the sermon this morning. Number one, That God has all of the resources to save. Number two, that God has the motivation to save. And number three, that God has the power to save. So first, God has the resources to save. If you look back at verse four, but God being rich in mercy. You can stop there. But God being rich in mercy. The first thing we learn about God here as we look up from our caskets is that He is rich in mercy. Paul could have simply said he was merciful. That would have been enough. But he uses the terminology of riches because the reality of our situation is one of overwhelming, crushing debt. The comprehension of the glory in our own salvation begins with this question. Do you know the weight of your sin? Do you know its horror? Do you know its vileness? Do you know how it loves to hide itself, as it were, behind your pride or your self-pity? That's why we prayed this morning for contrite hearts. 
Do you know how your sinful heart works so hard that you can convince yourself either it's not really that bad or you didn't really mean it or that you aren't really that kind of person or that there are tons of people who are much worse? Modern people are in an endless battle to define themselves. We want to discover ourselves. We want to shape and remodel ourselves. We want to fashion new identities for ourselves. And we keep searching and hiding and pitifully trying to build our own kingdoms of self-protection. Each day we wake up and the temptation before you and me is to try to be God. To make ourselves the main character of the story of the universe. Why? Because... In our flesh, we will not simply say, Lord Jesus, have mercy on me, a sinner. However, I am not saying that you must exist in a constant state of grief and disappointment. I have found that there is a thin line, a very thin line, between I hate my life and I hate the God who gave it to me. I'm going to say that again. I found there's a pretty thin line between I hate my life and I hate the God who gave it to me. God does not call you to perfectly arrange the circumstances of your life and then begin to serve Him. God does not call you to work out every detail of who you are and then begin to obey His commandments. Rather, He is the master of the house who gives His servants resources, right? You know the parable. To one he gave ten, to one he gave five, to another he gave one. And he says, start investing and making a return today. But before we move on, I want to point out that this richness language is used to speak of God's mercy. might be obvious, but it's important. But God being rich in mercy, right? And so it's what I'm sorry, what I'm trying to point out is that the richness is used to speak of his mercy, not of his wrath. Now, for sure, we are all of us called children of wrath earlier in chapter two. If you look at verse three, where Paul says we were we were counted among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But did you notice that wrath, while God has it, and it is most certainly right and just for Him to have that orientation towards sinners who reject Him, Paul does not reach for the language of God being rich in wrath. But rather, God is rich in mercy. Here's the point. Is there some horrible thing in your past that keeps you from Christ? Is there some unbearable sin that you shudder to name or are simply embarrassed about? Some horror that lowers you, as far as you can tell, beneath the dust. God is rich in mercy. You mean He has enough to save me? No, I mean your worst is a drop in the ocean of His mercy. Do not attempt to make your sin heavier than God's rich mercy. Mercy, because that would only add blasphemy to your list of sins. He has all of the resources to save. In fact, He has more than enough. That is the first point. The second, God is motivated to save. Look back at verse 4 again. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us. 
God is moved and motivated. Why? Because of His love. He acted to save us because of the great love with which He loved us. There is a richness in His mercy. There is a greatness in His love. This love was, so to speak, His motivation. That's the because. That was God's because to save you. Why do we need to hear that it is God's love that motivates our our salvation? Well, listen to this. God loves you. How does your heart receive that? If you say, well, of course He does. You do not yet know how sinful you are. You don't know. You don't. It is not at all amazing to say that uh, uh, your, your sins fit you for hell. Make you worthy of death and hell forever. That is not shocking. It is not controversial. It is not even harmful except for to your pride and ego. Your sins deserve God's wrath, judgment, and all the miserable hopelessness of hell. But at the same time, if you hear God loves you, and your first thought is, not really though, not me, then you have not yet realized that receiving love is an act of humility. Some people are guilty of constantly refusing to receive love or service or help because that would require humility. You're, you're so busy being a lowly wretch, you will not sit at the table with sons. But Paul does not say because of the great love with which he loved Jesus, and then so by extension, since you're in Christ, that means he kind of has to love you too. Right? Now it's true that because you're in Christ, you have the love of the Father. That's absolutely true. It's just not how Paul talks right here. And while, it, while it's good to know, and essential, not just good, it is essential to know what is true about God. It is essential to know truths about God. How we talk about Him really matters. Just like how we sing about Him really matters. Paul is saying to the Christians in Ephesus, God's love for you is great. Because of the great love with which He loved you. For some, that itself is a troubling proposition. Because if this God so loves me, that means that I have to repent of my obsession with self-hatred. I'm not talking about self-esteem. Right? Uh, uh, so I'm, I'm not trying to encourage you toward the goal of self-esteem here. The modern self-esteem mo- movement has been a plague on our culture, and the church has often found really respectable ways of spiritualizing it, God forgive us. So we have our self-esteem propaganda constantly shouted at us in posters and music and t-shirts and coffee mugs, right? You are awesome. You are enough. You are the best. You are amazing. You are powerful. It starts to sound a bit like a praise and worship song, doesn't it? Because it is. It is self-worship. And we, we need it shouted at us repeatedly because we often struggle to believe it for more than about five minutes. It's like cotton candy spirituality. It, it might fill you up for a few minutes, but you're going to be hungry again. But I'm not talking about self-esteem. Okay? I'm, I'm not inviting you to, to find your refuge in self-esteem. But here's what I am talking about. There can be a sinful 
even rooted in pride obsession with just how bad you are, how low you are, how much of a failure you are, how much of a sinner you are, how much of a wretched, wretched, wretched worm you really are as you sit in your own private little pit throwing your own private little pity party where it is always dark and never light, always despairing, never hopeful, always winter, never Christmas. And you refuse to think too much about God's love because such a love might require you to get up out of your grave and sing with a smile. You're not done feeling bad about yourself yet. And I think this can especially be a problem in Reformed Christianity. I don't actually think it's a problem with our doctrine per se, but I think it is the case that wherever these sort of self-pitying, melancholic types exist in the kingdom, we tend to attract them. (laughs) We tend to attract a certain personality type that specializes in bright theological learning, but really dark self-hatred. Paul says, God saved you because of His great love for you, so I ask you, can you say that? Can you say, God saved me because of His great love for me? Because of my brother Jesus, my Father loves me. If you can't access those words in your spirit, you might need to repent. Just repent of trying to be holier than God. But I'm not done with my self-flagellation. I'm not finished proclaiming how wretched I am. Oh, please, just grow up. Save it for Rome. They're better at it anyway. And just to be clear, husbands, dads, if you are stuck in this pit, you have to repent immediately and stop turning your home into a dungeon of miserable coldness. Be joyful. Bring joy through the front door. Full stop. Lead with joy. Yes, we are miserable sinners. I'm not objecting to the proposition. But God has done something about it because He loves sinners such as us. Yes, we are still so fragile and frail. And we often falter and we often screw it all up but God continues to forgive the sins of everyone he justifies you see we serve a God who's not ashamed to come face to face with sinners and say I love you and so our God is motivated as it were to save us not because we behave ourselves well enough but because of his love you see how important it is to believe this that because of his love Apart from that knowledge, you will begin to live as though God has rescued you based on something else, based on your spirituality, based on your your knowledge and study. You've worked really, really hard to understand this God. That's That's why He saved you. That's why He loves you. But because of your kindness to others, you're just really kind to other people, right? That's why He saved you. Or some other thing in you, but a love that is both for you and outside of you is the motivation of your saving God. He has the resources to save, and He is motivated to save. Finally, He is powerful to save. Look at verse 5. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, He made us alive together with Christ. Right? And by grace, you've been saved. We'll, we'll get to that towards the end. But this bit, He made us alive together with Christ. So we've already said our capacity to sin, or excuse me, our, our capacity to sin was great. Our captivity to sin also was total. We were dead, but God made us alive. We were captive to the prince of the power of the air and enslaved, 
but God raised us up with Christ. We were children of wrath, but our Father adopted us. Our captivity to sin is total, but our rescue was also total. We're made alive together with Christ. Now again, again, I want to point you to the language. I think it's important. Because Paul could have said, He made Christ alive so that one day later you too could live. That's not what he says. I mean, in a sense, that is true. Christ was brought up out of the grave so that one day you could be spiritually revived and regenerated and, and know Jesus. That's true. But the way Paul chooses to talk about it is to say that you were saved on the day that Jesus was raised from the grave. The day that Jesus Christ was raised up from the grave, so were you. This is important because sometimes we're really tempted to put the weight of our salvation on the authenticity of our conversion moment. Okay, On this day I made a decision for Jesus. Well, good for you. That is the fruit of what God has already been doing around you and in you. Now this is important. Do not, do not, do not ground your salvation in the intensity of a decision or a particular experience. Here's why. Here's why. It's not because emotions or experiences are bad. But if you take only one thing from the sermon today, take this. If you were saved by the experience, listen, if you were saved by a high that couldn't get any higher, then your faith and your confidence in God will be shaken the day that you meet a low that couldn't feel any lower. It absolutely will. I think evangelicals tend to especially be occupied with, you know, the day of our conversion. And, and to be clear, like conversion testimonies are good. Paul himself had a pretty incredible one, right? Knocked to the ground and blinded for three days before a guy came along to heal him. But have you ever noticed that Paul doesn't talk about it that much? I mean, he does here and there. Like He, he mentions it in Acts 26 and in Galatians as well. He references his, uh, his encounter with the resurrected Christ. But Paul spends much more time talking about what that salvation means for us in the present and in the future than he does talking about the sensational circumstances of his past conversion moment. When Paul gave his testimony, to use our language, he always seems to spend more time talking about what God is doing now with this chief of sinners than what God did back then. There is also a sense, so I offer that to you to, to, to ponder, to think on. There's also a sense in which the older you get, it can happen that the older you get, the less confident you are about your own spiritual state because you have a lot more sin in your history, right? Like, yeah, I, you know, I had some sort of experience of God's grace and salvation when I was 13 years old, right? But now I'm like 35 and I've had a lot of time to do a lot of sinning since then. And I just wonder if God's patience with me has worn out. It's possible to get yourself caught in that. And look, if the day that God decided to save you was on some midsummer's night shortly after your 13th birthday, then you might have a case. You might have a case if it was that God 
had really had no plan to save you until like one night uh, during your 13th year uh, on this earth, your 13th trip around the sun, God says, ah, okay, I think maybe today, I guess. Then okay, you might have a case, right? And once, you, once you get to your 30s, 40s, and, and so on, then you start to feel like, well, I've got a lot more. I bet God's getting worn out. But look at what Paul says. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. God rose you up on Easter Sunday. When Jesus died, you died. When He was buried, your sin was buried too. When He rose up, He took you out of the grave with Him, and every sin of yours, past, present, future, remain buried and forgotten in the tomb. When God desires to display His power, He turns enemies into sons and daughters. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies, and around the table is a whole family of God's former enemies. Such is the power of our God. We tend to believe that God makes His power most evident when He changes something outside of us, right? So when He changes the weather, or when He heals somebody's disease, or when He redirects a circumstance, when He delivers from an addiction. Okay? All works of amazing grace to be sure. But let me offer you this. In a world and in a culture that believes more and more that our desires are immutable, our self-perception unchangeable, our passions unalterable, our impulses unalterable, into that fog of hopeless falsehood, the Lord Jesus Christ says, I bring dead sinners to life and change them from the inside out because our God is powerful to save. Our text this morning closes with these words at the end of verse 5. By grace you have been saved. This will form the foundation for next Sunday's sermon, but I didn't want to go without touching on it uh, to conclude. It is, this is, this is the great reality that Paul's been building towards since chapter 1. By grace you have been saved. And his whole reason for speaking this way, as we will see more next Sunday, but I will tell you today, his whole reason for using this language is to say, not of you, but of God. He, he's trying to, to uh, remove all the opportunity for boasting that might exist in the human heart. We have been saved by grace. That is, by the, the sheer kindness and love and action of God to sinners such as we. That same God is committed to making sure that you understand that this salvation is all of Christ and you have nothing to boast about. Even at the end of all things, it's, it's always struck me, I think this is probably an illustration for next week, but I'm going to jump to it now. Uh, even at the end of all things, when, you know, when Jesus tells that parable about the sheep and the goats, right? the sheep run his right hand, the goats run his left, and and he tells, he tells the sheep, like, essentially, you took care of me. When I was in prison, you visited me. When I was hungry, you gave me food, and so on. 
and they have no blessed idea what he's talking about, right? It's not like they have a list that they've been tracking with all of their good works to ensure that when it comes time for the books to be open, they can cross-check that with their list and say, yeah, I'm good to go. The Lord Jesus says, you did a lot of good. And they say, Lord, what are you talking about? So it is. So it is with us. You have nothing to boast about. And God is, God is committed to doing His good through you, to be His hands and feet, to be the body of Christ. God is far more committed, however, far more committed to your humility than you are. And when you start building a prideful tower, right, behold, look how much I know. I know so much more than most people, right? Look how much I have figured out. Look how much I have memorized. Look how much I have suffered. Look how much I have worked. Look how much I have prayed. Look how much I've put up with. Look at how much I have served. Look, look at me, look at me, look here. God is kind to level that tower to the ground, thus that it is roughly the same elevation and altitude as the Tower of Babel when he was through with that one. Not because knowledge or service or suffering or work are worthless in God's kingdom, but because it is by grace that you have been saved. If you wait until you are better, you will never come at all. Your sins are many, and they deserve the wrath of God. Your sins are not small, petty sparks. They are nuclear explosions of rebellion. Apart from Christ, therefore, you are dead in your sin and without hope to save yourself. But God, in the name of Jesus, amen. And so, our Father, we ask that you would quicken our hearts with joy to celebrate all that you are for us in our Savior, Jesus Christ. And I pray for those who are far and distant from you, that you would draw near to them, that they might indeed draw near to you. That you would bring sin into clear focus, that sinners might flee to our Lord Jesus to repent. Lord Jesus, have mercy on me, a sinner, which is where it all begins. So hear the cry of the needy, the cry of the sinner this morning, Lord. Lord Jesus, have mercy on me, a sinner. Amen.